and good morning everyone or good afternoon or good evening depending upon where you are on this rotating globe welcome to another edition a very special edition tonight to the other side of midnight that magical time between dusk and dawn where for years we've been saying that the the stuff that used to be confined to these pre-dawn hours is kind of now leaked out all over everything. And you can see it on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or any of the other major papers or outlets or websites or social media 24-7. The world is, well, it actually isn't is, it has gone nuts. And what we're trying to do is to kind of steady the ship you know, the uh, steady as she goes, and to give you a kind of a course and a compass heading as a guide through these very, very turbulent waters. Uh, tonight's show is very special. We're going to do something that we have never done on the other side of midnight before because it has not been time. Remember one of those cliches from the uh, Gala Wine commercial I'd love to repeat if anyone's listening. You know, make no wine before it's time. Well, it has not been time before now, and now it is time. Time for what? Well, it's time to ramp up our activities, our campaign to bring the extraterrestrial truth of what is lying around us all over the solar system, beginning with the stunning, absolutely stunning, mind-blowing uh, architecture on our own moon, which is now being quietly confirmed by separate national space program after national space program. We'll go through all that this morning. And this is culminating in the beginning tonight on the seventh tetrahedral spins of January 1 of 2023, because tonight is the beginning of a campaign. When you've just gone through a bizarre four-day, 15-vote campaign among the Republicans to choose their Speaker of the House, given that they won four seats uh, last November. And as you have noticed, uh, things did not go very well for the GOP. It took them an extraordinary number of votes. I really thought that McCarthy was going to cinch it on the 14th, because, of course, that would have been perfectly symbolic, ritualistic, uh, tetrahedral, you know, 14 double tetrahedron, 14, the number of pieces that uh, Osiris was dismembered into, etc., etc., and Matt Gates just would not go along until number 15. Anyway, we'll get into all that and kind of the larger meanings uh, shortly. I want to start tonight, however, with a miracle, and that is not my word. That is the word of the mayor of Buffalo, New York, who this afternoon, in describing what happened and what is happening with DeMar Hamlin, who was a safety for the Buffalo Bills, who last Monday night, Monday night football, after a absolutely average, not anywhere extreme uh, tackle, uh, got up bounced up, literally, um, as these guys do. It's like, good grief, how did they do that? And promptly, shockingly, in front of millions and millions of viewers all over the world, collapsed on the field. And for in excess of 10 minutes, according to the clock and to the medical data we have, um, he was gone. He was dead. He was no longer in this dimension. And because his extraordinary medical situation happened with 25, 30, whatever, extraordinarily gifted, trained medical professionals, and a whole ambulance, and everything from paddles to, you know, intravenous injections, to experts in uh, uh, cardiopulmonary uh, resuscitation technologies and techniques. In other words, the equivalent of a hospital staff with a crash cart waiting just feet away. 
after working on him for in excess of 10 minutes, I've, I've actually uh, uh, seen numbers that said it was 19. And if it's 19, I'm betting dollars and maybe means it was 19.5. Anybody want to take that bet? Um, they brought him back. And then he was rushed to the hospital where he crashed again. His heart stopped again. He went into what is technically in the medical field. Remember, I lived with Robin for 20 years. Cardio arrest cardiac arrest. Um, his heart literally was not doing what it normally does, and he was only 24 in superb shape. And if you go to the first two items uh, on the other side of midnight, for those who are new to the show, the way you find these items is you go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL, our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather grandly and mysteriously, the signed Bean Painting, beginning of the 2023 Enterprise Mission ET campaign. We will describe all of that this evening. We've got three hours. Click on that banner on the homepage. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you will see uh, a big in yellow letters to listen to the show. Under that, you see fast links to items. My name, uh, Barbara Honiger's name, and Georgia Lambert's name. Click on my name. That takes you to my section of that page, which we call In Honor of the Old RKO Studios, where we actually had a development deal for a movie on some of our research many, many, many years ago. Um, it's called Radio with Pictures. And down that page, if you click on my name under that banner on the guest page, it takes you to that section of the page where my items for tonight are listed. And the first two relate to uh, Damar uh, Hamlin, because the more I look at this, remember, it's kind of one of those situations where been there, done that. Now, I did not 20 plus years ago go into cardiac arrest. I just had a massive heart attack in a hotel room where, unbeknownst to me, days later when the doctors were conferring with Robin, who saved my life by rushing to the hotel and getting the EMTs to come and cart me away in an ambulance. And I went to <clears throat> two hospitals, first one and then another, Miami um, uh, Heart. And they did their magic and here I am. But really the magic was involved something much higher and more interesting. It was a combination of Art Bell reaching out to millions of listeners who had followed my... Uh, appearances on our show for many, many years prior to that awful, awful morning. And, of course, uh, Robin's exquisite follow-up, um, which is necessary. It's, uh, when, when, I, when I look at the statistics of what happens when you have major heart issues, particularly now that we're looking at this sudden cardiac arrest, uh, that's what item number two um, item number one, let me kind of be a little systematic here. Item number one, which really caught my attention, was an official statement a couple, three days ago from the Buffalo Bills, uh, who said in a very interesting manner, per the physicians uh, caring for DeMar Hamlin at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, DeMar has shown remarkable improvement over the past 24 hours. This was posted uh, a couple days ago. While still critically ill, he has demonstrated that he appears to be neurologically intact. This is crucial. We'll get back to that momentarily. His lungs continue to heal, and he is making steady progress. We are grateful for the love and support we have received. Um, that was a couple days ago. As of uh, today, this afternoon, uh, he has been removed from the intubation. He was on a uh, uh, machine assist for breathing with a tube stuck down his throat, which is very, very uncomfortable. He was sedated. He was actually put into an artificial coma, which frankly was probably a really good idea because it gave him time without external distraction to go within and to assist himself what else was going on. And I'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, his progress continues to be 
quite remarkable. And when you look at item number two, because uh, I went and looked at numbers, I'm a numbers guy, so I went and looked, you would be shocked, I was shocked, at the number of people per year in the order of three, four hundred thousand in the United States have this situation happen. And their survival rate from getting to the hospital to being, you know, uh, released as outpatients or just released, even for those who have a cardiac arrest situation in the hospital with full medical staff, crash carts are able to rush down the hall, you know, nurses yelling, uh, you know, stat, stat. The survival rate is on the order of 10%. 90% of the people in hospitals who have this die, regardless of the attention they receive. So that really made me kind of think about this. The thing that's missing, of course, is unlike DeMar, who had this happen in full view of countless millions all over the world on live television, all of these other incidents are known only to a relatively tiny handful of people, friends, family, hospital staff, whatever. And I believe, based on my own personal experience, where when Art went on that Monday night and announced to his millions of listeners that I was in real terrible trouble, the amount of love, the amount of prayer, the amount of attention, the amount of hyperdimensional focus, because frankly, that's what I think is going on here, released something that against all odds, I mean, they literally uh, showed Robin in the days I was in uh, the second hospital, um, uh, images of my heart, and she said that half of it was just black because it had been starved for oxygen. So it might as well have stopped because uh, the prognosis was if I survived and the odds were less than 50%, I would be an invalid. I certainly could not have come back to New Mexico where I'm at over 6,000 feet. The partial pressure of oxygen at this altitude is significantly less by a factor of, well, I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to make up a number, but it's not linear. It's, it's a logarithmic. The higher you go, the less oxygen, more rapidly, the higher you go. So it's, uh, it's not like half of what it is at sea level. It's, it's somewhere in that vicinity. Anyway, I have not had a twinge in 20, 24 years. I mean, it was 98 to 2023. So I have, I'm in perfect health, except for these stupid headaches. I'm in really, really good health and I'm not doing anything extreme. And I should not be here tonight, regardless of, you know, what happened, unless it had been for the short-term intervention, literally through a hyperdimensional connection. That's how I'm looking at this. Um, Because of Art's attention, the same thing only magnified by countless numbers, because DeMar was the focus of world attention of everybody. 99.999% wishing him the best, the most, the most beneficent, the most extreme, positive, all the right things. And so when the doctors and the attendants and the experts surrounding him in the Cincinnati uh, Medical Center say he is showing remarkable improvement and he's now off the ventilator, and he's talking and he's talking and you know the story that the first thing he he asked when when they uh, when he woke up because uh, he couldn't talk he had to write it on the pad was did we win and the doctors say you know not only are the lights on but there's somebody home in other words he is going to because people's attention is not going to go away now i can tell you again from personal experience that when public attention moved off me, when Art's audience says everything normally happens, people's attention wanders because they they have lives to live. They have their own situations. You know, you, you can't bring the focus of 
all those people forever. So it was a it was a relatively brief window, which of course is where Robin and her you know uh, technologies and techniques and homeopathy and all the things she did long after <clears throat> the public attention had gone away. The two things are crucial in concert. And as I started to read the item number two from the American Heart Association, it turns out that this situation of sudden cardiac arrest is the least advanced in terms of post-event therapy of any major medical trauma or condition. And it's because most people don't know what to do when someone around them suddenly, you know, falls down and has this extraordinarily rare but incredibly fatal problem. And that means we need more paddles, we need more uh, life-saving, uh, you know, classes, lessons. It isn't very complicated. Um, they were able to start uh, uh, cardiac uh, treatments, you know, with ch uh, chest massage and all that immediately. And then they brought in the paddles. Those are critical because he apparently had a what's called a fibrillating heart, meaning it was quivering like a bowl of jello within his chest, but it wasn't beating and pumping coherent blood. So his brain was being starved for oxygen. You know, his cells were dying. I mean, this is this is catastrophic if it goes on more than a few golden minutes. So he basically had the best outcome from the worst possible situation in that he was not in a hospital, but the, fortunately the hospital was there on the field for all of the players that night, as it is with all professional games. And there's an awful lot of this that occurs in in um, amateur football, in you know schools, high schools, and even grade schools where kids are playing, because what appears to have happened is something called commotio cardis, which is a Latin phrase for basically his heart got hit hard in exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time. And basically because the heart is an electrical instrument, it's like pulling the plug and the rhythmic neurological electrical function that keeps the heart beating in a rhythm was interrupted at exactly the wrong milliseconds to create this catastrophic condition. And as I said, hundreds of thousands of people die of cardiac arrest, not due to uh, you know this particular problem, but it's one of those factors which can create this trauma uh, instantly. And unless there is appropriate knowledge on the part of bystanders, and most of these things occur outside hospitals, not within, uh, the odds are that you're going to have a problem in life when you're not in a hospital. So there needs to be much more knowledge of this technique, much more knowledge of the problem, the trauma, what to do about it in those golden minutes. And of course, uh, electrical stimulation to restart the heart is critical, but that means you have to have you know, a crash cart somewhere uh, nearby. Now, since you know airlines figured this out many years ago and they have electrical stimulation paddles for exactly the situation. But they need to be in public places like, you know, uh, airline terminals and, and supermarkets and malls and, you know, everybody should know where they are. There should be big signs on the wall saying, you know, electrical, cardiac, you know, resuscitation equipment in here, that kind of thing. And maybe DeMar's situation is going to create a public outcry so that what is a really, really major um, emptiness currently in keeping hundreds of thousands of people alive, I could not believe the fragmentary number of people who survive, and that's within a hospital. Outside, it's even, it's even worse because there's no available intervention by most people not knowing what to do before it is too late. Anyway, uh, what I'm really intrigued with is because of his immediate attention medically, and then because of the incredible worldwide attention, I believe DeMar Hamlin is going to become 
a poster child for the best of all possible outcomes. In fact, I heard one doctor yesterday afternoon saying, based on what's going on, that he could easily see that he will completely recover and will go back to playing professional football, which, of course, would be very, very dumb. But, uh, you know, that's that's his choice. Now, um, there's a whole bunch of other things that we can talk about and um, what I might want to do if there's enough interest in this uh, is to get someone to come on who could give us more professional assessments of A, what happened, and B, what can be done to, uh, uh, you know, take this incredible potential tragedy and turn it into a positive for so many other people. But it just seems to me that there's something very, very unusual here that we should kind of not let slip by. Because I think there was this magic coalition of the, the interested, the available, the attention, the physics. Uh, some of you may, you know, have listened last Sunday night when we were talking about uh, of things to come, the predictions for things that might occur in 2023. And I started the program with uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Rick Levine, who, as I said on the show, is the only um, truly admitted hyperdimensional astrologer that I know, and that's the physics behind astrology, if you're kind of wondering. And we talked about all the weird things that were happening electronically to the show that night that were kind of like a show-and-tell because things really were not working, and we were in what's called Mercury retrograde. Well, the model is that in these situations where you have major planets and we have two now, Mars and Mercury, in retrograde geometrically as seen from Earth, the physics is being stirred backward, which means it's being amplified. It was in this amplified window that this occurred to DeMar. And it's really weird because that night after we got off the air, I was telling uh, Rick on the, on the air that I've got this weird LED uh, um, chandelier in the in the kitchen, which has stopped working regularly years ago, but it isn't really called it quits. It kind of sits there and glows, and every once in a while, for a period of hours or days, it lights up normally. Now LEDs are not like incandescent bulbs. There's a additional digital component. There are chips associated with LEDs, and I believe the slight change of the physics, which interferes with electrical current flow and voltages, is enough to trip the chips to where they're, quote, momentarily or temporarily healed and the light functions the way it normally did when we bought it new. That light, which had been on, um, I'm sorry, had been off for several weeks before, that night after the show suddenly turned on. And it stayed turned on through Monday, through Tuesday, and only went off again. And I've sent emails to Rick, so I have this documented, on uh, Wednesday night. So it's in that window. If I'm reading the LED correctly, the change of the physics literally triggered that light to function normally. Well, that's the same window in which DeMar Hamlin experienced his potentially life-ending event. And then the subsequent follow-up, which was what happened after. If, again, the model is correct, the physics was at enough of a different level that his event and the public attention, this extraordinary focused attention of millions of separate consciousnesses, if I can say that, on him made all the difference. And when we come back, and we're reaching now the bottom of the hour, uh, I'm going to bring on uh, one of my first guests tonight, Georgia Lambert, and we're going to uh, talk about this just a little bit further because uh, this is, this is I mean, the mayor of Buffalo said flat out, it's a miracle. Now, you may define miracle differently, as uh, we say around here, your mileage may vary, but it definitely is not normal. Uh, if you can look at those stats from the American Heart Association, and I'm obviously intrigued with those things which are not, quote, 
normal. And that's what the show is about. We're trying to bring you the abnormal with some kind of a rational explanation to get to uh, uh, further down the road to trying to figure out what's going on. Item number three. Um, that was the, the major human, extraordinarily positive story of the week. The other story, of course, was the 15 times that uh, um, Congressman uh, Kevin McCarthy from Bakersfield, California, tried and failed to become Speaker of the House representing the GOP for the next two years. And then finally, last night, on try number 15, um, he made it by one vote. And the only reason he made it is because Matt Gates, who's another um, a congressman from Florida, who'd consistently been voting in a way that precluded um, uh, McCarthy from getting the required number of votes, changed his vote between vote number 14 and vote number 15. And there were all kinds of bizarre things that happened. And that's item number three. Uh, two lawmakers, one from, I believe, Alabama named Rogers, literally came over and was within seconds of uh, actually uh, exchanging you know, some kind of body blows with McCarthy and was only held back, as you can see there by the image in item number three, by one of his uh, other congressional colleagues. Uh, tempers and emotions were running very, very high. And everybody says that, uh, well, it's because, you know, at the last second, McCarthy did some kind of a backroom on the floor deal with Gates and got him to change the vote. I'm not so sure. I'm wondering if this is not another example of what we might call, at least for the, the evening now, the Dumar effect. Was it all those people watching C-SPAN Live, watching McCarthy miss by one vote because of one guy that literally tuned in and said, good grief, man, be an adult, be a mensch, do the right thing, give the guy a damn chance. And suddenly he changed his mind. Now, why would I say that? Because Gates appeared on Fox just a few hours before and said basically that McCarthy had given him everything he could think to ask and he had nothing more to ask. So what could McCarthy have promised him that McCarthy had not already promised him? Is there an unknown factor? I think there just might be. So on that note, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, we have an extraordinary evening to present the beginning of the Enterprise extraterrestrial campaign by the offering of a unique painting of Alan Bean, astronaut Alan Bean, signed by 24 astronauts, historical astronauts. And we will explain what all that means and what these funds will do when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not touch that dial. Nineteen 
5.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January 7th of 2023. Gosh, it seems like just a few days ago that I was intoning 2022, how time does fly. Um, I want to introduce my first guest because I want to talk a bit more about this Damar Hamlin situation. I do not think we should let this pass because it's an extraordinary moment where we should focus on the times in which we live. So I want to bring on Georgia Lambert. She is our resident metaphysician. She has a very lengthy bio. You can read it in the bio. Just click on under tonight's banner there on the guest page, the bios for Georgia. She worked with uh, Manley Hall for at least a decade. Uh, Georgia, am I, am I crazy or am I seeing something here that... Uh, we should follow up. You're not crazy at all. Uh, a couple of very interesting points. Uh, back in the late 1960s and early 70s, uh, there were several institutions. The most prominent one was the Symington Clinic in Texas. Uh, they were the ones that sort of pioneered the work in visualization for cancer patients, teaching adults and children uh, how to visualize along with their uh, regular AMA medications. And they found that visualization really put them over the top as far as having good results uh, were concerned. And this led to other groups doing research, and they have found uh, on more than a few occasions that people that are prayed for um, when they're in life-threatening situations do better than those that do not. So, so the, the numbers, of, the statistics are there to support this idea. Absolutely, yes. Yes, it is. And I think it was funny you, you were talking about your own uh, particular uh, incident. Um, back in those days, I listened to Art Bell, as did a lot of my friends, and we were all part of that uh, good wishes sent your way. I could way feel it. <laughs> I could, in fact, it was so, it was it, it got kind of funny because, as you know, I have had a few enemies over the years. You know, it was all. I'm, I'm not on Twitter because, you know, so don't worry about that. But, you know, when you're a visible public person, you have supporters and people who, you know, don't support you. And uh, anyway, so I had a number of enemies out there and they started sending around emails claiming that the entire event of me in the hospital, heart attack and all that was just made up. It was all fake because, quote, I look too damn good in the photos that were posted on the internet of me in the hospital. And I thought, it, because I, well, I felt good because all these people were sending overwhelming something. And literally exactly. I, I went from feeling really like a death's door to feeling absolutely, it's like, wait a minute, what am I doing in this bed? I gotta get out and, you know, in other words, I felt so normal that they had to actually keep me from, you know, jumping out and going back to what I normally do. <laughs> the, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, is, is sort of a, a technical thing in terms of uh, esoteric anatomy. 
you know, there's a, a subtle energy body that underlies the physical nerves that the Hindus call the nadis system. These are like tiny lines of vitality that underlie the physical nerves and funnel into the physical nerves. And they have uh, sort of big vortice points. And the two main connections of this energy body with the physical body are called two threads. One, the life thread, which is anchored in the heart at the sinoatrial node. That's the pulse point, the SA node. And the other one is a consciousness thread anchored in the head. But it's very interesting that um, in, in normal death processes, the withdrawal of this subtle nervous system happens in the extremities and eventually gets to the core of the body. But in cases like what we just saw with this athlete, um, the shock to the heart at the SA node, the, the physicians were talking about the pulse point, the SA node, the shock to that uh, jerked that life thread loose. Hmm. And the... Uh, the heroic measures on the field uh, probably kept it intact enough until it could reconnect, which can happen because that thread does disconnect, for instance, in terms of heart transplants, and then it has to reconnect. But this essay note is really, really interesting. In medieval times, they believed that uh, there was it was a point of blue-white light and that if you could open the chest and touch it, your finger would be burned. They oh thought it was that that physical uh, a thing. But it is the electrical point that is the drumbeat for the heart. In Hindu mythology, you see the dancing Shiva on the drum. This is the life. Uh, in the in in the in in some reports of out of body experiences, and I this appears. I wish we had John with us. Uh, he'll be on tomorrow night, so I'm going to ask him. And you'll be with us in the third hour tomorrow night, so you can back up asking him. Um, I, I've seen conflicting reports. Well, maybe they're not conflicting. It's like there's two categories. You're talking about a different thread. You're talking about a I'm talking about that, that silver cord that connects the yeah. out-of-body Cobb, right. whatever it is, with the body lying yeah, there on the bed. That's not, that's not the life thread. It's a different thread. Oh, Oh, what a sticky web we weave when first we're trying to figure all this. So we, we're, we're connected by how many threads to what? Well, again, it would take a whole class on esoteric anatomy, but we are multi-layered beings. There are different layers of, of, of body or sheaths of matter. And what I'm talking about is the densest one that's closest to the physical called the vital body or the physical etheric. What you're talking about with out-of-body experience is the astral body, which is more subtle, temporarily disengaging from the physical to go off and experience stuff and then be drawn back but in. But connected by a cord, by, by a thread. Yes. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Except that's not all. The, all I've, I've seen it both ways. Either you are or you're not. You know, it's like, like, like a free-floating EVA without tubes connecting you to the spacecraft or, or lines or electrical or oxygen. And then the other reports are that there's this thread. And I, I've, I've never had a chance to ask John which one he participates in when he does his uh, scurrying around. So I will do that tomorrow night. Okay, um, I think I want to go back to where I was going to go before we got into this fascinating, you know, side canyon. Um, because we don't, three hours is not a lot of time. It's amazing how time flies when you're having fun. So if you'll just stand by, let me let me kind of pick up the <clears throat> pun intended thread of what we're talking <laughs> about here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to do that. Okay, item number four in my items. Um, we are going to be visited in the next few weeks by a comet. A comet which, according to the orbit, has not been within the inner solar system for something like 50,000 years. So everybody's talking about it as the, quote, Neanderthal comet. Uh, little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. So if you go to item number four, that's a space.com story. It turns out that the first week or so of February, it'll be within something like 28 million miles. 
It'll be visible in the northern hemisphere looking toward the constellation of Ursa Major. That's the one where the, the Big Dipper hangs out, uh, among other stars. And so if you're in a dark sky, they're claiming that you might be able to see this with the naked eye. Obviously, I know exactly where I'm going to go. Uh, a pair of binoculars will easily show it, as it did on a previous comet that I went up to uh, look at at this particular place up the up the road from me. Uh, if you're not in a city, of course, if you're in a city, you can't see anything. But if if you're in the country, you can go see it. And there's going to be online telescopic live views. That's all contained in the lower part of that article on space.com. Now, the reason this is interesting is because of item number five. Remember, part of our research and part of the reason that we're using tonight to basically kick off a fundraising drive so we can get the word to as many mainstream media and people as necessary to, you know, create change is because we have now discovered that an awful lot of these objects in the solar system, which people, the mainstream, still thinks are natural, are in fact not. They are ancient, ancient, derelict habitats and spacecraft of a extraordinary scale and size and mass, and they're damaged. So when they come near the sun and they warm up, their formerly internal atmospheres, which uh, froze when they were, uh, you know, holed in space by something, we think it was the war, uh, they, they, they warm up and the, the ice is turned to gas and the gas becomes, uh, you know, material ejected from the body. And so a lot of the comets we see are not normal bergy bits or, or you know, uh, what do they call it? Uh, rocky or dusty snowballs in the uh, Fred Whipple model, which was uh, created back uh, at the Smithsonian back in the 1950s. They are, in fact, ancient derelict spacecraft. And again, all you have to do is look at some of the NASA imagery. And if you can see your way clear to notice the symmetrical geometry, which is hiding under all the crud that they've been covered with from all this outgassing over, you know, countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Anyway, it just seemed to me kind of interesting that right now, as other things are poised to bring consciousness of this previous condition of the solar system to major public attention, there is appearing in the skies another object, which if we could send a spacecraft really close, we would again be able to ascertain is not the product of natural solar system forces and creation, but it is a leftover from a long, long forgotten bygone era where something extraordinarily huge and tragic happened to our incredible advanced ancient, ancient ancestors. Which leads us to number five. There is a uh, new paper where people are now proposing in the mainstream that the first ET alien probes to reach us may be way more advanced than we expect. Really? <laughs> um, I mean, the idea that we would encounter an extraterrestrial civilization or its artifacts and it would be something on the order of Kmart, or as you'll read in that piece, you know, Voyager 1 or 2 or New Horizons or whatever. In other words, any of the current spacecraft we're creating. I mean, it's absolutely laughable. It's absurd. Because if you look at the calendars that various extraterrestrial uh, investigators into SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, have been proposing all these years, you'll going back to Sagan, you'll notice that our level of cultural and technological advancement is so brief compared to the history of the galaxy or even the history of the solar system that the idea that we will contact anybody at roughly our level of technological and spiritual 
and cultural sophistication is kind of like almost zero. Anybody we're going to encounter, and certainly any of their technology, is going to be so far ahead of us. And that, again, assumes kind of linear thinking. You know, think of Arthur Clarke's third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, meaning it will do stuff that our folks cannot begin to understand because, of course, they don't have the right theoretical foundation. And in the mainstream, they are totally ignorant of the idea of a hyperdimensional physics, which makes a lot of things that are currently mysterious in this area and field and subject matter actually rationally explicable. Which, of course, brings us to the item and the centerpiece of tonight's show, which is item number six. Now, what I've done here is I have taken um, another bean painting and we've made it into a clickable link. So if you click on it, uh, it takes you directly to the Alan Bean uh, website, which is his gallery where all or most of his paintings currently reside. And there are subsidiary links on that site to the um, professional distributors who have the contract to, you know, handle his paintings for people that uh, want to buy prints or lithos or whatever. Uh, what I did is I had Keith put up another composite I created, which is the composite on the left. And what this is, is a painting that uh, in the latter years Bean did of uh, Jim Irwin, who was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 15, landed at the so-called Hadley Rill in the northern hemisphere of the moon, not too far from the uh, um, uh, huge 20,000-foot-high uh, mountains, the lunar Apennines that loop down in a curve on the uh, eastern side of uh, Mare Imbrium. And to the right is a close-up view from the recent Orion spacecraft as it was rounding the far side of the moon before the burn of the engine that would send it on a trajectory that several days later had it splashed down successfully in the Pacific Ocean south of San Diego. And the reason those two are companion is because look at the exquisite colors of that moon. And then look at the colors that Bean put into his, quote, imaginative, lyrical, almost, as he says in his written captions, uh, fantasy projections of a likable moon as opposed to the dead gray environs that he remembers seeing. Which, of course, brings us back to the central enigma of the whole Alan Bean artist, Alan Bean astronaut um, scenario or mystery or compounding mystery. Um, number seven, right below that, is another Bean painting of Gene Cernan this time, who was the uh, commander of Apollo 17, the last uh, Apollo mission to the moon. And on the right, there is a photograph taken by the chest cameras, the Hasselblads that both astronauts on the surface were wearing to take pictures. Um, and it's a absolutely regular uh, photographic image from, from the uh, environs of the Apollo 17 landing site on the rim of a place called Shorty Crater. And in the front center, you can see the brilliant orange soil that they got so excited about. But look at the rest of the, of the image. Look at the purplish violet rosette mountains. Look at the greenish terrain. Look at that rock in the bottom right foreground and the multiple colors. Again, Bean, if he was subjected to the same kind of brainwashing that I believe now that I document in uh, uh, Dark Mission, all the astronauts were subjected to. Um, they did not remember the real moon that they walked on, that they looked at, that they sampled, that they you know took photographs of. They looked at, in their minds, at something that was implanted, a script, a kind of um, uh, dissociative, implanted, hypnotic memory 
a script, not their real experience at all. But the really interesting thing about Alan Bean, compared to all the other astronauts, is that Alan Bean, from long before he was selected as an astronaut, he also had this other side of his brain, of his consciousness, of his of his um, uh, identity, well-developed, which was the right-brained artistic side, the connective side to seeing and feeling and sensing, um, not just in a linear, metonymic, very, quote, logical fashion. And I believe, again, I can't prove this yet, but I believe that over the years, as the distance between those, whatever the astronauts were subjected to in terms of you will not remember, whatever that treatment was, whatever that therapy was, whatever those imposed commands were, that they began to break down. And in Bean's case, they're the reason why his paintings, beginning in the 1990s, had this incredible, remarkable shift between his engineering, logical, making models, making gray tones, painting, you know, putting dabs of moon dust from his spacesuit in the paintings, all of the very metonymic engineering expertise he brought to the physical creation of these things, and they became much more, in his mind, imaginative, metaphorical, spiritual, uplifting, and he just felt better. He couldn't, again, in the captions, unless he's really, you know, an incredible actor, and he knew exactly what he was doing, and he simply submerged it under the guise of, um, you know, being, quote, an artist and having artistic license to represent the moon any damn way that he wanted to. Well, at some point, these two curves, the rising, extraordinary, developing evidence from a variety of spacecraft that have been to or are now heading for the moon and taking new data decades, 50 years after the Apollo imagery that we've been looking at for all these decades. Those will all catch up with the cover-up which has been going on up to and including in the next year or two, maybe as late as 2025, there will be, you know, nine astronauts, civilians, uh, in a Musk Starship spacecraft in orbit around the moon, who are all looking at the moon, not with left brain eyes and engineering measurements, but with their artistic skills and their associative capabilities of connecting dots subconsciously that consciously most people do not even notice. Um, those people need to have a campaign directed at them before they leave on their singular life journey, courtesy of Musk and SpaceX going around the moon in the next few months. I mean, we're talking maybe 12 months, 24 months, an incredibly tiny period of time. If the Enterprise mission does, with your help, what we think we can do, which is to bring to these artists' attention Alan Bean's real, extraordinary, almost Sistine Chapel-like moon, then when they get there, and they use their social media, including Trump's own Trump, Musk's own Twitter, which I think is why he bought Twitter, so he would have this avenue that no one can interrupt the way the game is played at that level. If he owns Twitter and these nine artists take the proper images and make the proper videos and show over their shoulders out those gorgeous windows in the starship what the real moon looks like right below them, if they put it on Musk's Twitter, it will not be censored and it will alert the world to a stunning paradigm shift for everyone, all seven plus billion people currently living in extraordinary impoverishment compared to the lives we could be living 
if we avail ourselves of the science, the technology, the engineering, and the spiritual awareness of our own ancestors and what they left for all of us right on our own moon. Which brings us to number eight. Uh, Barbara Honiger, who has been a stalwart guest on this program and represents a wide variety of very specific and paradigm-shifting interests, ranging from the things we're going to talk about tonight to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, to having served in the Reagan White House and understanding, you know, what really goes on in Washington, and much, much more. Remember, she got the first degree in parapsychology in the world a few years ago, uh, just kind of up the street from uh, Southern California. Um, if, if, if it hadn't been for her, we would not be having this conversation tonight because with her beneficence and her vision and her foresight, Barbara went out and purchased from the Bean Foundation a signed print of one of Bean's seminal paintings, which was created to celebrate the opening of the uh, U.S. Astronaut um, Center, the Astronaut Memorial uh, there at the Cape Canaveral, which is, uh, among other things, now housing the extraordinary technology preserved from the Apollo era, a bona fide refurbished Saturn V. It's now contained in a hall, in a air-conditioned volume. It used to be just kind of sitting out on the lawn with pigeon droppings and rain and rust and all that. And then the powers that be did a fundraiser. They raised enough money to put it inside into a huge hall where American citizens, taxpayers, who helped create and fund, without whom this would never have happened, the $20 billion uh, in 1969 dollars um, Apollo program, uh, one of those Saturns lying there on the lawn uh, was then contained in this memorial. And at the front, behind the podium, the, the uh, originators of the memorial selected Alan Bean's painting, Reaching for the Stars, to be emblematic of this whole idea that we are not constrained to one planet, that the destiny of the human race definitely belongs in space, and there is a huge iceberg of meaning underneath that simple phrase. And they chose this painting uh, to kick off the opening of the memorial. And because they were all there, Bean was able to get 24 of his compatriots, uh, the other Apollo astronauts, and the Gemini astronauts, and the Mercury astronauts, and the um, uh, shuttle astronauts to sign the painting. And so Barbara went and purchased a copy of the painting, and we are now offering it uh, as a fundraiser to the highest bidder, the highest donation for the painting that will help us fund the next level of the Enterprise Mission Campaign, which is to bring to the world, but specifically to these nine artists that will be looping around in lunar orbit in Elon Musk's Starship spacecraft, the idea that there's really something extraordinary which will literally reach down and change the destiny of humans from here on. We're at the uh, top of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. When we return, we'll bring on Barbara. Georgia is with us. She wears many hats. Georgia is a brilliant artist. And we'll also be joined by Ron Gerbron. Remember, Ron is a um, generalist. Well, part of his background has to do with gallery art in New York City. Stay tuned. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>